So, how do we start? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. So, I think that we started. Yeah, we way. did. Yeah. yeah. But mm. would you, Łukasz, introduce David to our listeners? So I have here like two pages of notes, color-coded. Ah, and because gosh. you have done so much in your life, I have no idea how to start. So I'll start with the education. Mm. Your last one was in psychology. Yeah, well, it's psychology. It's like, because my original training was engineering, mm-hmm. everything I look at with an engineering kind of lens. So psychology is just like engineering people, really. Yeah, the one before that was in management. Whilst I was programming fruit machines, or games programming in the early 80s, and the company I was at was in Cardiff, I was a couple of Wales, and there was the Cardiff Business School there, and they were starting up, and they were doing business courses. So I just went along. And it was a master's in management and technology. They later converted into an MBA, because it was pretty much all MBA stuff, but with Mm. a bit more maths and a bit more engineering. And uh, they said, yeah, so it was... One day a week was from 12 noon till 9 o'clock at night, solid lectures, and another week from 6 o'clock at night till 9 o'clock. And all the rest were like essays and assignments and so on. So you basically needed half a day a week off work. So it was designed for people in work. It took two years. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a really tough beginning because I was engineering and maths and things like that. I had not written an essay since I was 16. (laughs) And uh, I was, what age were they there? I was 30-ish, I think. So all of a sudden, all of the, your coursework and things, it's write an essay. You know, it's like this, I had one essay, it was, it was, what is the meaning of profit? And I was like, oh, and it was like, there's a finance module. I was like, okay, well, you sell stuff and you get money and you take one from the other and you got profit. Okay, what do I do now the other 5,000 words? <laughs> <laughs> it was a good exercise before you started writing the books though, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it was, it, it basically got me into, you know, a lot more writing and how to, how to write. So this, this is early 80s, so it's a while ago. But it made me think about how to write and the whole kind of academic thing of back up everything you say. Don't just give opinions. It's because X, Y, and Z, either either some reasoning, but mostly have with the references. And this was the days before the internet. So you had to go to the library and read out paper journals, pull them out and sit there and read them for hours and hours on end. Okay, going backwards before that, you mm. did study teaching. That's a romantic story, that is. Oh. Uh, yeah, 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 this this. it. But anyway, it goes back to when I was doing engineering and um, I was in, in my second year. I was going out with a girl, we were getting on fine, but it was like, wasn't going anywhere. But there's, other, there's this other girl I fancied, like, yeah, man, she was like gorgeous. But she was going out with another guy from the year ahead. So it was like, okay, okay. Anyway, got to the year, I dumped my current girlfriend back to college because I knew this girl was in the same year as me. And I just turned up at the beginning of the autumn term went, oh, hi, how are you? Uh, I just thought I'd just drop around have a cup of coffee. And anyway, everything went to storm. And by Christmas, we were engaged. And that, you know, wow. <laughs> you know we've been now been married uh, 43 years. <laughs> but after university, I went to work in Cambridge designing spectrophotometers, which are electronics of it. Larry was... She, she actually spent part of the year teaching in the nursery school and part of the year she had glandular fever, which kind of laid her up for a long, long period. But then she said, I'm going to go back and doing teaching. And I thought, well, I'm not terribly happy where I am. And I miss you like mad because I was miles away. And another year off in university sounds like a good skive. <laughs> and uh, teaching, so I'll be useful, another spring to the bow. Kind of, yeah, mm, yeah, I like doing that kind of sort of thing. And so anyway, we went back together and we did the, the education year. She studied Welsh, but she ended up teaching English in a Welsh school, Welsh language school. So everything was taught through the medium of Welsh, but it was English as a second language in Wales sort of thing. And we worked on the principle that she would get a job first because I did maths. You can, maths teachers can get jobs anywhere. Mm. There's always a shortage. Every job I applied for, I was offered. So I just applied for jobs nearby and uh, took one of those. And you know, it worked fine for a couple of years. I enjoyed the teaching, but the pay wasn't great. And I just hated marking. Marking is just so boring. Tick, <laughs> tick, cross, tick, yes, no. Oh, God. So I was taking some kids out to a local ice rink, but there were some interviews at the time. This was, this was still in the 70s. And there was a company called uh, Littlewoods, which had a mail order. They could have been Amazon, but they missed it. 
but it was all catalogs and things. They also had some some chain stores, and uh, they were looking for people because they were growing computer stuff because they had automated warehouses. Automated warehouses in 1978. Oh, wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it was amazing. But so they were really on the edge of stuff. Um, they had the biggest Honeywell computer system outside of the Pentagon. <laughs> um, so they, they were serious into that stuff, and they desperately needed people. So they were doing just interviews, and you you went along. So I dumped the kids off with other teachers in the, the skating, and I scooted off to this hotel for interviews, and that worked well enough. And then you went for another full day. I just pulled a sickie and you know, went, went on a full day of, of interviews or, or tests and things, psychological tests and aptitude tests and so on. And then they had a their own school. They had two lecturers who were full-time and, and a classroom teaching people how to program because at that time the universities weren't producing people and we had historians and philosophers and geographers and all sorts and it was great we had a really good time and i worked there for a couple of years and then they drifted off to cardiff where i did the other ones but yeah you see you see i sort of like drifted from one thing to other it, it seems odd to go from like electronic engineering to teaching it to does. programming but it kind of drifted I was actually doing programming and I was teaching because they wanted somebody in the school I was in to teach kids programming. And they were just teaching them basic and a language called Cecil, which was a sort of a pseudo assembler language. And they went, oh, you've done engineering. You can do it. So I just kept one step ahead of the kids, realized I really enjoyed this, this computer stuff. <laughs> I sometimes wonder, what if I stayed doing it? Because I loved it. I absolutely love programming. But you're in the middle of the, of the night. It's like three o'clock. I'm going to have to go to bed sometime soon. But anyway, I drifted off from there to other stuff. I got lucky, really. I had an interesting life. My work life was it was really interesting. Found myself a really good woman very early. We still get on really great. I've been very lucky. That's the thing, you know. Mm-hmm. You look in the mirror, you this old guy looking back going, you're a lucky boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, but next to luck, you did take these opportunities that were coming along, right? Oh, yes. There is... There is no such thing as luck, really. It's a construction that we make that we, so that we can attribute luck to the things that happen. So when bad things happen, we go, oh, uh, I was just unlucky. Yeah. And when good things happen, you can say, oh, I'd be modest and pretend it was luck as opposed to all the really hard work and things. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is sometimes good things happen. It's just it was luck and not the hard work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of everything. There's a lot of stuff that we kind of make up in order to make sense of life. Are we talking about common sense, by the way? Yes. Yeah, I was thinking about that. What is common sense? So there's two things there. But first of all, sense comes first. Three types of sense. You know, we could probably do more, but pure three. First of all, there's outer sense, which is the sensing with your five senses, which is your data collection mechanism. Yeah, you suck in data, a lot of it through your eyes. A heck of a lot of your brain is busy processing everything you see. You know, then sound and touch and, and taste and all the others. So you, you're sensing, and that goes in. But that's just raw data. You know, the brain has to do something with it. And then there's two things that it does. It does reactive stuff and reflective stuff. Reactive is that it, it's basically unconscious. So data comes in, and you react without any thinking much about it. And it can be sort of natural stuff. Somebody throws a ball at you, you jump out of the way, you know, or reach up to catch it. That's reactive. You don't have to think going, oh, there is a ball. I will jump to the left or something. You just instinctively move. We would do the same with other things. You know, when we're talking to people and so on, we don't have to think about a lot of the things we do because our unconscious is driving it. So our conscious is doing a lot of sense making as we go along. We look at, you know, out in the world and we're constantly looking for familiar things. You know, our unconscious mind goes, what's familiar? And we categorize it quickly and then we can ignore it or not spend much time because the thing that we have little time for really is conscious thinking and usually we can pretty much think about one thing at a time pretty much if you're a guy particularly so we know this is where we're reasoning and sensing and making sense of things and reflectively going oh maybe that's not quite this or maybe there's something else or what are the logic of this you do this in different ways so for example i have this conversation my, my daughter is great we got in very well she studies a lot of similar things to me and there's a kick-ass consultant you know we were talking about it the other day about that we are very 
fact-based. She was an artist, but she still thinks in facts and, and logic and reasoning, and we have great arguments about things. But my son and my wife are a lot more unconscious. The you know, things just arise. If you ask them to explain themselves, they don't necessarily like this going where they're going, well, it's right because I said so. And and so you have to kind of manage life and going, okay, that they're people, that's human, that's that's they're not bad, that's not wrong. That's just how they see the world. So for them, common sense, they don't know why it's common sense, it just is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this just it is. Well, whereas what I'll do and when I'm talking with the daughter, we'll have long conversations about why something makes sense, dig into the depths of it, have a nice philosophical discussion. But you don't have philosophical discussions with yourself all the time because there's just not time for it. So to some extent, that common sense was reactive, unconscious sense. A lot of this is then, there's a social thing. The idea of common is that it's common to other people as well. It's not something you pick up on the ground. It's like we share it. Because we communicate a lot, we're very social beings. Then common sense is something we assume that other people will know as well. We most often use it in conversation to say to somebody, oh, that's just common sense. But why do we say that? Why do we say that's common sense? And what does the word common mean in that in particular? It can be positive and it can be negative and it can be ego defensive and all sorts of psychological reasons for it. So it can be intuition signaling going, I have intuited this, that it is common sense. So it's a, it's a common process I'm using here and it makes sense to me, but I can't give you any reason because I haven't thought it through. And maybe I don't like thinking it through. Also, in, in persuasive sense, it can be a bit pejorative. If I, you know, if we're arguing about something, going, well, it's just common sense. What I'm saying is, if you don't understand it, you're stupid. Yeah. Another yeah, one here is we so all common, know that this is how it works. Yeah, that's right. But it, it be you know, because we're complex beings and we're not necessarily negative about things. Things can be negative, but often when we are negative with other people, what we're really being is defensive. You know, we are saying things like, please don't argue with me because I would feel uncomfortable if you argued. So the common sense argument is a signal to say, I have not thought this through. Please don't try and make me. I don't want to. And I might even miss this and so on. So it's not that that thing is bad. Anyway, that's a long-winded answer, isn't it? (laughs) So one was the senses, the other was the social, but you said that you had three. Yeah, there's the three. It's outer sense, which are the senses, the mm-hmm. physical data mm-hmm. collection, the sensing, the sensation. Second one is the unconscious, the ah, okay. reactive, uh-huh. you know, sense-making. It just comes out and you immediately recognize something as going, yeah, that's good. But then there's reflective, the thinking about something, which needs to use that very precious thing we've got, which is time. And we ain't, you know, we've only got a limited amount of it and you can't go backwards through it. Although, total digression. Have you seen the Netflix series Dark? No. No. Oh, that's great. If if you like sort of science fictiony things, it's set in a sort of a woody area, forest in Germany. It's set in 2019 and 1986 and 1953 and 1921. And it's 33-year cycles. And the 33 years, apparently, there's a lunar solar cycle where the moon and the sun are sort of aligned. But they, they don't really talk about it in that. But it's this 33-year thing. And there's basically time travel happens. So you've got people. The worst thing is trying to figure out who's who. Because you see this person going, all right, I know that's Ulrich, but that's the... Ulrich in this year as opposed to the Ulrich in that year. But it's really, really interesting. And it's all about this time travel you know, stuff and thing. And there's a nuclear power station and it's all sorts of weird. So if you like science fiction and you like timey-wimey stuff, it's good fun. Okay. okay. We're going to check it out. Yeah. But just coming back to the common sense. So you got yourself into the subject of changing minds. Yes. And... I think that there is a lot of common sense that's maybe not necessarily that common in yes. the understanding or the yes. behavior of people. Yes. Could you tell more about that? Yeah, well, some of the things. One of the things is that we try to read people's mind. We're talking to one another and we think we know what each other is thinking, but we don't. And we get it hugely wrong. So when we're trying to change a mind is we've already 
decided what's in that mind already. And we just need to do this, tweak this little lever, and it'll it'll change just because we've pressed the right button. But it's way more complicated. One of the strange things in there is, is we think of the people as simple. We meet them, and in, in seconds, we've put them into boxes. Are oh, you one of those? I know exactly how you think. But we look at ourselves, and no, we're really complicated and complex. We have arguments with ourselves. We've got a whole bunch of characters in our own heads. But when we talk to other people, do we think we're talking to one of the characters, you know, one of the people in their heads? <laughs> no, it's just the person because they're simple. So we fool ourselves into thinking that changing minds is easy. So if you are changing minds, the first thing really is to acknowledge that you might not know what the other person's thinking and they might be a bit more complicated. And that the first thing you need to do is really listen and understand where they are and how they're thinking and try to make a bit more sense you can never fully get into their heads um, but if you can sort of like try and walk in their shoes a little bit one of the principles is assuming positive intent but whatever they're doing people aren't bad people are just people they're doing things you know they're trying to cope and live in the world because once you start judging people that's because judging is about you are good and you are bad and i am the judge and the jury and the executioner so we go, you had to do that. That was very bad. You've got to do that. You've got to go and say sorry. Why? How come when we say that to people? Because that comes into values. Values are, um, are, are rules, basically. We have rules for lots of things because they act as constraints. There's legal rules, but there's also values, which are effectively social rules a lot of the time. So we share rules with one another. It's because we're tribal and we want to be able to live amongst people and know they're not going to come and take our stuff and stab us in the back or whatever else. You know, so in order to trust people, we have values. And then companies have things like policy and so on. The rules are all over the place. They constrain us. That's part of the price of freedom, that we give up certain freedoms in order to get other freedoms. If you're going to join a company, then you effectively agree to follow their policies and so on and engage in their culture in order to get the freedom to work within the company and for the people in the company to trust you. So trust, that's another massive, massive thing. Because if you're going to change your mind, you need to have trust. Because if, if you want to decide something, there's two ways of discovering truth. One is to experience it, do experiments yourself, and then you've found a something works or something doesn't work but the other one is you have to accept it from somebody else whether it's a friend a teacher a textbook you know a university lecturer you know you assume they know what they're talking about and accept what they say is truth so a lot of truth is received truth you need trust mm. and then you have systems of trust so understanding the dynamics of trust and how trust is happening is the gateway to persuading people you, know, you look at some of the politicians of the day and going, how are you building trust? What they're often doing is trust is with, is with a particular segment. They're only appealing because one of the current approaches is you pick a segment of voters and you target just them. And what everything you do, everything you say, Donald Trump, of course, is the character at the, of the moment, although there's some others copying him. And he just plays, everything is just playing to his thing. This thing recently about Greenland, you know, I'm going to buy Greenland. Mm -hmm. That's power signaling. That's sending a signal to his voting base. He doesn't want to buy Greenland. He knows he can't buy Greenland. But it's sending a signal. I'm a very powerful person. He constantly says, I am rich and powerful. Because trust plays to power. If I am very powerful, you have to trust me. And you, in fact, you will want to build a relationship with me because I could hurt you because I'm very powerful. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you could persuade me to use my power to help you in some way. So powerful people tend to get people who want to want to be their friends. And this, this then sort of sees into things like celebrity culture and so on. Because when we want to trust people, if you meet somebody, the key thing you do with people is you look initially, ideally you want evidence for that somebody is trustworthy but when you've met them then you don't have any evidence so you look for similarity 
is that similarity is the basic principle that you use. So someone who's like me or somebody who's like somebody I like or somebody who is like somebody I trust, which is why things like confidence tricksters and so on will put on police uniforms or doctors' white coats or things like that just in order to build trust because they are becoming a symbol of somebody trustworthy. But when you are talking about it, I have this impression that so with the relationships, you can have like the parent-child relationship either way or yes. like a partnering relationship. And a yeah, lot yeah. from what you're saying is this more parent-child relationship yes. to trust. So I'm a smaller person, therefore I'm looking for someone who will take care of me. And how about yes. the trust that's built on the equal level? Adult trust. Yes. So we're talking transactional analysis here. Eric Byrne games people play. When, when I was in school, that came out, and then it was sixth form. There was a whole bunch of us. We read it and thought, wow, this is fab stuff. Yeah. So parent-child stuff, a lot of people are in parent-child stuff. Trump plays the parent. He wants you to be in a, exactly. a, a weak child. Obama was as well, because Obama was hailed as a saviour. A lot of people thought they would be saved by him, because it's a very common thing to do. When there is problems, we go into saviour-seeking. Who will be our saviour? And then you find somebody going, yes, you'll be the saviour. And of course, nobody's going to be a saviour because they're not. Per nobody's perfect. And after a while, you go, you're, you're not our saviour. <laughs> you pretended to be our saviour. Get out. We hate you. Right. Who's, where's the saviour? And you just go around. Who's and the next saviour? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So the thing about how do you engage, it's to call on the, the adult in the other person. Because a lot of people are used to speaking in parent-child relationships, particularly with status, effectively. And some cultures are very status-oriented and others less. And some people, cultures treat status in different ways. If you go into a status culture and say to people, I am your equal, they will say, no, you're not. You're either my superior or, or not. The classic difference, because I'm, I'm not English, I'm Welsh, right? and there's a big difference you can understand when two Welsh people meet, the conversation is they say to the other person, where are you from? Yeah. And where you're from is followed by, oh, do you know such and such person? <laughs> and what they're looking for is common connection. They're looking to connect and, and looking to connect as equals. It's very much, do you know a friend? You know, and it's about making friends. Talk to an English person, and I apologize to all the English people speaking, but I've had <laughs> to experience this. It's the question, oh, what do you do? Yeah. And what's that about? It's about status. Mm -hmm. And it's about, should I look up to you or should I look down on you? And because England is from the, the aristocracy and, you know, the traditional thing, you need to know, you desperately need to know who is your superior or inferior. So you know how to work with them. Because the worst thing you can do is talk down to somebody you should be looking up to. <laughs> it, it's pretty tricky the other way around as well. So when we meet people we, with the status thing is surprisingly important. It can be friendly as well. You hear it in a lot of conversations. There's a guy called Keith Johnson who wrote a book called Improv, which is he was the founder of Improv Theatre. He would get his students and just like put them in front of him and say, right, you are two people on the street. You've just met. You don't know one another. Have a conversation. And he'd listen to them. It's just not realistic. It doesn't sound right. One day, I think he was at a bus stop and he was sitting waiting for the bus and there were a couple of women talking there and one was saying, oh, did you see this new film? And they weren't going, yeah, I hear it's not very good. Oh, no, you, you, you go and watch it. You'll really like it. And he was like, what are they talking about? It was quite a makeable conversation. And going, oh, it's about status. There's a little status jostling because you're in these micro status positions. And then he brought that back and injected into the improv theatre method. And it got a lot better. <laughs> and, and he talked about that. He's, he's got whole chapters on it. One of the other chapters in the book is about masks. But then that, that gets then into the Freudian stuff uh, about the true self and the false self, that we project the false self because the true self is fragile and the false self is erected to cope with the world and protect the true self. See, that comes out in conversations when we're talking about, I want to be the real me, you know, what's the real me? Uh, it's that, that stuff. So in changing minds for getting to understand the other person, is quite a journey. But the nice thing about it as well is that you end up understanding yourself more as well because you understand people and you're going to make sense of it. So all the study on psychology that I did, I, I find it fascinating. 
And it was fascinating. I was like, ooh, looking inside my own head as well, going, ooh, that's how that bit works. How interesting. You've got to be prepared to put yourself out there as well. When I was reading through your book, I asked myself this question, is it really changing the mind of others or is it changing my own mind? Well, that's an important point in that the book is mostly about changing the mind of others, but you can also reflect it on yourself. Whenever I, I you know, seek to persuade somebody, I always also seek to listen and be open to persuasion myself. To some extent, that's part of trust building, because if you go to another person going, you must believe this, then they're going to put up the defences. Whereas if you say, let's have a conversation and see if we could tell me your views on it, you know, what do you think and so on, it's it's like if you're selling cars. If you're a car salesperson and somebody comes along going, this is a great car, it's wonderful because of this, this and this, they might believe you, but they might not. If you go along going, this is a good car, here are some things which aren't so good at it, but these things are actually really good as well. And on balance, it sounds more credible. Sounds like you're looking out for them. You're being trustworthy. Because the, in terms of evidence, three things we look for in our people. One is reliability. We say, is, is this person predictable? Are they competent to do things? Do I know what they're going to do? Then it's honesty. Are they telling me the truth? But the third one that's which is often forgotten is care. Does this person care about me? And if, if I don't think you care about me, then I'm not so likely to trust you. <laughs> yeah, I'll listen to you and I'll see if it makes sense and so on, but I'll be more cautious. And, and there's two types of care. Uh, there's passive care, which is do no harm, which means I can sit around with you and we can chat and whatever, and I know you're not going to try and hurt me. So that's, that's okay. But then there's active care, which is you go out your way to help me. So the person selling you the car, you, know, you might go in and say, I'd like this car. I'm interested in this going, well, we could sell you that. And I could make a commission on selling you the car straight away. That'd be easy. But let's learn a little bit more about what you're looking for. And maybe I can help you find a car which will suit you even better. Going, God, oh, what a nice, nice salesperson. They're sacrificing the, possibly the commission in order to help me. Oh, I'd really like to buy a car from this person. So they see themselves into it. And so you, you do that. The best salespeople are people. People, people, if you like, they, they hmm. like other people. Yeah. You, know, you get people who are, who are into, I get things about how can I manipulate other people when it's like this magic, dark stuff. You read some of the old sales books and it's people who've been like salespeople for, for donkey's years. They just love their customers and they treat them like family and so on. And guess what? The customers love them back and they keep coming back year after year. That sort of thing appears also in, in company methods. There's, I was reading anything about Toyota in Japan. If you buy your car from Toyota, Toyota then gets into bed with your family. So your kids are growing up and they will plot going, right, in three years' time, your son will want a new car because he will be, you know, reach the age when he can drive. You know, and then the salesman will come around to the house and have dinner with you and talk about your family and you know what the cars are. And you know, they really, really get very close to you. Which in our culture you know, might be a bit like, oh, that's a bit worrying. I don't want the salesperson to come to dinner. But uh, in other cultures, I guess it works. Mm -hmm. You tackled on a, another subject that keeps on making me think. So using the word manipulation or even persuasion is yes. seen as pejorative. Yes. Influence yes. even, it's on a fence. Yeah, yeah. Because it's hitting deep needs. I've been chipping away at another book for years. I've been working on it for, oh God, I don't know how long. I to pick it up, write a bit, put it down again. But the basics of it is about human need. You start from Maslow stuff with health and safety stuff and then belonging and esteem and self-actualization. But look at it from what's underneath that. So the engineering thing is dig, dig, dig. What's underneath this? Why is this? It seems like two fundamental needs are a need for a sense of control and a need for a sense of identity. So the identity stuff, super complicated, all the stuff about what is the self and all that, that stuff. Philosophers have been digging around it for years and psychologies. There's no end to the depth of that. But the other one's relatively simple. It's about the sense of control. And it's a sense because it's effectively a, a signal. There's a little flag that comes up in our heads that's saying, whoa, hang on a moment, I'm losing control here. And we'll then try to do something about it. And that's what happens when you get people 
who are even talking about, oh, I can manipulate, I can make anybody decide what they want, I can hypnotize people. You go, oh, hang on, what's happening? And when we're doing that, that's our sense of, of control, raising a flag to us to going, hang on, oh, there's somebody's trying to take control away from you. That flag, I mean, it's, it's like an interrupt, computer interrupt. It comes in, bing on the side, and wakes up the processor and drags it away, subroutine over here, and then carries back on with what you're doing. So control thing is a priority interrupt. It's like status stuff is an identity interrupt. You know, somebody starts talking down to you and you're going, hang on a moment, you're not my superior. Yeah, because they're like, you're trying to put your, your status above me. And then they're like, whoop. Because the states and control identity mix up together. It's also a control thing. Since we are talking about persuasion or changing others' minds, a subject that lies right next to is ethics. What are your thoughts about this? Ethics, they're rules. They're like values. Same stuff. Ethics, morals, values. They are social constructions that we agree on within society so that we can kind of get on with one another. And the basic ethic is sort of a do no harm. And it's this care thing. It's part of why we trust people through active care or passive care. In it. So it's be nice to people. So don't take advantage. Don't use your power in order to gain things from other people mm. and don't hurt people which is the you know most ethical things are are about and with persuasion yeah it's exactly the same works as well but at the same time knowing about it i've seen people i've chewed through a number of fields for example i chewed through the nlp field mm -hmm. which can be a bit cult-like at times i went on courses with richard bandler who's the founder of it and i watched it all happening going oh this is fascinating One of my responses, if somebody is trying to use like, quotes, techniques or something with me, my reaction is I spot it and go, oh, how fascinating. It's like I logically, mentally take a step back and I become an observer. So I'm not so much engaging as watching. And I watch myself and watch my own reactions going, oh, he said that. And it made me feel like I wanted to help him. Oh, how fascinating. But I don't because my mental executive has taken over the you know, control of those things. But. If you have a job in which persuasion is part of the job and changing minds, and we all do, you know, changing minds is part of everybody's job. Me, more or less, but if you're a police officer on the streets, a lot of what you're doing is changing minds. If you're a politician, of course, if you're selling, marketing, even if you're like working R&D, you've got an idea. You could have persuade somebody that this R&D you know, idea that you want to research is worthwhile. I was trying to dab here a little bit into more kind of gray areas. Let me start from my example. It would be easier for me to explain. So for last year and a half, I'm consulting with a big bank. Yes. And they decided they're going to, you know, change the whole organization and be different, blah, blah, blah. And they hired a number of people, including me, to help them with that. And at the beginning, I was working a lot with teams for which it was a new way of working. And I was trying to help them along this line. And once in a while, I would have a question Is it really in their best interest? This is where I touch upon the ethics, because I understand I was hired by a company for a certain job. I'm paid for that. That is fine. I'm doing that job. Whether it is in the best interest of these people to change right now in a certain way, in a way that organization wants, if I look at them separately, who they are, how they behave, what's their history, how old are they? That wasn't so obvious. And this is where these ethics, for me, they kind of gray out a little bit. Ethics tends to gray as well. You, when you get like values conflicts, where effectively you have multiple ethical or value systems conflicting. Yeah. For example, you, know, you were brought up, your natural upbringing, the values of your parents and teachers and so on. You've figured out what's important to you and not. And then you go and work in a company and then there's company rules which say these are the morals and ethics of things but then you get into situations where you have espoused values and you have enacted values and they're often different mm -hmm. you know companies say we're all about working together and so on but they reward you for personal success yeah and to get personal success you could screw somebody else claim credit for something that somebody else did and so, and so on and it goes from being little things things or it's okay at the time or you're you're feeling threatened by something i need to say something i need to show that i'm good at this or you say oh i did this thinking oh, i sort of did it there's some other people but i'll just say it for now 
which also shows that whatever we do, we reframe it inside our own heads mm. as being ethical to our own internal standards. So we excuse ourselves. We blame other, other people. We seldom blame ourselves for such things because it's uncomfortable. We would go away from discomfort. Ethics can be a, a slippery slope in that you can do something which is slightly unethical. You're going, oh, it's only a little bit, it's only once. And then they bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And you can be effectively corrupted by the system which rewards unethical things. You can be corrupted by individual people who will deliberately get you to do things. The couple of personality disorders which you meet in business settings is narcissism and psychopathy. There's a really great book, which I'd recommend if you want to scare yourself, called Snakes in Suits hmm. by Robert Hare, who's the... he's. The hair test is the standard psychometric test for psychopaths. And he basically talks about stories of people in, who get into business positions. And psychopaths and narcissists tend to have very little way of empathy. They don't care what other people feel, and they'll trample all over you. And they are usually very good at managing upwards. Mm -hmm. So the boss thinks they're wonderful. In fact, first time you meet them, they could think, what a nice person. and. Um, yeah, look at you got a psychopathic cat there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and even, even with those two, with psychopaths and narcissists, the difference between them is about control and identity. Psychopaths enjoy control, and, and narcissists, it's all about their stroking their identity. But the reason they succeed in business, and there's something like there's some statistic about being more people at the head of companies, the right at the top, who are psychopaths. Yep. And it's because the system rewards them. Capitalism, by and large, says make money and it doesn't matter how. Do as you like, but don't get caught. Pretty much the story of this. So you get this system whereby you want to do the right thing, you want, you know, but you find yourself in a situation where to do it, to get things done, you have to do things which you are unhappy with unethically. And so you have to choose things like, do I want to work at this company? Yeah. Because the enacted culture may not be contrary to your ethical situation. The way that you have to persuade people, the way that people seek to persuade you, things you do. And it's, you know, it's part of life decisions. It's one of the reasons why I stayed at HP for nearly 20 years. I found them very good ethically. I've mm -hmm. worked in other places which were horrible. One of the, the secrets of life is find somewhere where you're comfortable and stay there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like common sense very much. Yeah, indeed. There's a story, there's a radio at some time. There was a chap who lived in a northern city in the UK, uh, Manchester somewhere, and it just a little house in a back street. And every year, he and his wife would go to Blackpool, which is this a seaside place, which is, it's a bit flashing lights and, you know, neon things and casinos and whatever else. But he liked it. They went to Blackpool and they had fun every year. So he thought, one day, why don't we move to Blackpool? So they up sticks, he found another job, and they moved to Blackpool. And they lived there and for a bit. It was great. And after a while, it just wasn't so great. But then he was watching a thing about Australia, about it was great to go and live in Australia. So they up sticks, they moved to Australia. They got a house by the beach. And they went for walks on the beach, and it was really great. But after a while, they, they started to miss Britain and things, and the shine went off it. So they moved back, and they moved back, and they moved to a house which was two streets away from the house they started off in. And they were deliriously happy. But they had to go to Blackpool and to Australia in order to realise that they were happy where they were in the first place. And they didn't move after that. Because they'd sort of figured out one of the secrets of life is, you know, happiness is where you are. It's about you. It's not necessarily about the place. Mm -hmm. You're tapping on another subject that really intrigues me, which is the internal narrative that we create for ourselves, which is a common sense that not many people realize. Yes. There's a really interesting book. I'll keep bringing up books, I'm afraid. Perfect. By a guy called Tim Wilson. He's an American professor. 
But what he did is a whole bunch of studies of programs in America that were trying to change the minds of teenagers. And they were trying to basically say, can we reduce teenage pregnancy, drug taking, crime, and stuff like that. A famous one of the studies they did was called Scared Straight, where you get policemen come into the the classroom and you know, go ah lecture yeah oh, you'll be in trouble if you're in you know do things and ex you know convicts come in and you know you just try to scare the kids into behaving and they spent a huge amount of money running this program massive and, and when they studied it you, you know you got the actual results and the consequences for the kids they actually made them worse the kids got into more crime because they went oh criminals this is, sounds like fun <laughs> and so they were putting thoughts into their heads but the ones which, which did work had a common theme to it, and that was that they changed the stories that the children told themselves about their own lives, so their own self-stories. That reflects then in other changing minds, that if you want to change somebody's mind, what, what are the stories they're telling themselves about the work they're doing, about you know, where they work, about, you know, what about their lives? It's the classic thing. You can sit down and put two words, I am, on a bit of paper and then, then write down whatever comes after it and then go, why? You know, what's mm. the story? And you can build a story behind, you know, most I am statements or any I statements generally. Mm-hmm. And if you can see where those statements are, if you want to persuade people, you can strengthen it. The easiest one is to strengthen that story, so build into along the same storyline. So... You are a an engineer. You know you define yourself as an engineer and engineering. So therefore, I am selling engineering books or listen to my engineering podcast. So I will play to that storyline. But what if I want to change your story? That's an, a lot, lot harder. So you have to sow seeds of dissatisfaction with the story. You can show that other people have changed the story, that you know, you can say, here's the road you're going down. Ahead of you is a crossroads. Or there are other ways, there is a fork in the path. You know, and show that people have choices within there. And you know, that your story is going to go down this one or the other one. And you know, there are old religious ones about this way is the road to hell and this is the path to heaven. But it's it's that kind of thing. But you work with people's stories as opposed to assuming that they have a story, but they might not. Mm-hmm. The, the story that you think they have might not, because we think other people are more like us than because we're in, you know really. I've I've only got my own head. <laughs> you know, I've been in my own head for quite a while now, and I sort of know it, but there's lots I don't know about it. But mm. I, you know, I think I know about it, but I have no idea what's in other people's heads. Not a clue. Not a clue. You know, so. I want to hear your story if I want to change that story. You're talking a lot about the change of an individual story and influence yep. on an individual. Yeah, yeah. How yes. about the groups? Well, this is, this is what politics is about, yeah, is how do you change a group? This also goes into the diffusion of innovations. There's a book called, book called Diffusion of Innovations by... Uh, can't remember the author, but he was an anthropologist. And he would study things like he would go into the South American jungle whilst it was still there. And he would look at things like the Western folks would go in going, hmm, your kids are dying. If you boil the water, your kids will live more. And the people go, ooh. And then the, the local witch doctor goes, hang on, oh, I'm losing control here. Go, no, 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 the gods will be angry or something. And they, and they go, oh, I better do what the witch doctor says and so on, because that's part of their story. But then somebody goes, you know what? I'm going to give it a go. I'm not going to tell anybody. And so they boil the water and their kids survive. And some you know, other people go, excuse me, why is your kids not died like my kids died? You, why, why are you still alive? Don't tell anybody. I boiled the water. Before long, it spreads. But what you had there was effectively a social leader. There was somebody prepared to break the rules. And other people then would see the results. So they have basically done the experiment for you because you know everybody else feels crikey. If I bowl the water, something would be wrong. The gods will be cross with me or whatever. 
So I'll let somebody else do it. So somebody else takes that hit and you can then start to follow it. So it's the thing about social leaders. It's like Mike looking for social influencers online, giving them shoes, get them to talk about this. Lots of stuff about if you are a, you, you've got enough followers on Facebook or wherever, then people who want to sell to all your followers, they pay you. But And all they do is drop in, oh, yes, I bought this thing. Do you know of a guy called Tim Ferriss? Of course. Because he talks about things from time to time. He said, I've listened to once about it, he said he's got enough followers now that if he promotes your product, you will sell out. Hmm. You've got a warehouse full of it. It's going to sell out. So you've got to be ready. He won't promote your product until he knows that you've got a pretty good chance. You know, you've got the supply chain ready to go hmm. to do that. So he does well out of all that. That's part of the thing, the way of doing it. He has figured it out. You know, he's an interesting character in himself. But he has a story and he's quite happy to talk about his story as well. So the people relate to him because when we know other people's stories, we relate to them more, um, particularly if we can sort of see our story either being like the story or the story is something that we would like, we admire, or if we find something good about it. It works the other way as well. You know, if, if the other people's stories are, we consider to be unethical, you know, then we will distance ourselves from them. So in the end, it sounds like changing the group yes. is really changing all its members separately. Only here, the forum is broadcast. Yes, yes, absolutely. So you, you can change a group if you have the trust of the group. So you're getting followers and the followers will trust you, build your style. For example, at the moment, I'm building a YouTube channel of photo editing because I'm a keen photographer and I like a bit of tech. And there's a, a thing called Affinity Photo, which is doing very well against Photoshop, but there aren't that many channels. So I figure, right, okie dokie, I think I can do a fairly technical channel, but, but which appeals to beginners and experts and five minutes each, so I'm short form, very much to the point, cut straight into it, no talk, like here's this, here's this, here's the, this, and, and then also explain why this is, happens because of this, this happens because of this, and, and so on. And it's doing okay. I've got knocking towards 3,000 followers now. Nice. Which is, that's in just over a year. Mm-hmm. Which, which, but I'm doing one video a day. So it's fun. Nice thing now is, because I'm sort of retired, is... I can do what I enjoy doing. So mm-hmm. this stuff that's that's fun. So coming back to this influence over yes. people, in your book, you're also talking about tension. Tension, is, this is how it happens. The core of persuasion, changing mind is tension. There's a bunch of words like cognitive dissonance and so on, which are around about the same thing. But we literally feel tension. But when, for example, the salesperson says, you know, imagine what it'd be like if you drive your new car home and you know all your neighbors are admire it and and so on. And you see you build a picture and a story of this, but then you know that you haven't got one. So you've got a tension between the current and this potential future. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's about gaps. Tension is caused by gaps. Tension is what you feel. You tend to feel it in your body, but you can mental tension as well. So if you want to persuade, you know, one of the things to look at is what are the gaps you produce and then close? There was a famous selling style called spin selling, which HP used in the 90s. And SPIN of spin stands for four different types of questions. S is situation questions. You start off, you ask about the situation. So if you're selling something, you, know, you say, how's business? what's getting on and so on. But you're in there as well, you're looking for tensions and things, but you're getting the bigger picture. You're getting the context. That's like the first thing. Second one is problem questions. Now you're looking for where the gaps are. So you're looking for problems they've got. So if you're selling storage units, for example, you're looking at what the current capacity is and and the demand and so on. How's that? And going, oh, okay, so you're growing your business and demand's going up and down. So at some point you're going to run out of storage. But if you say to them, you're going to run out of storage, then they might say, oh, don't worry, we've got plenty. So you're then in a situation, you can see the problem, but they can't. So you can see the gaps, but you have to work then to build attention. So the I is for implication questions. So the implication is questions, things like, well, what if your growth happens as it's been doing? Let's try a spreadsheet, look at how how that works. So you're growing. There's a demand spike and so on. How will you cope with that? How long will the current storage last? 
you know, when do you hit the thing where you run out of storage? And if you're growing at this rate, which is your target, you're going to run out in three months' time. Oh, crikey. Now they have seen the gap. Mm-hmm. So they are then feeling the tension. So the problem questions is you spot where the gap is. You can, And, and then the implication one is you create a feeling of tension in them by getting to see the implications. And then N is the needs payoff question where you're effectively saying, well, what sort of thing would help? And they say, well, I guess we need some sort of storage. And say, well, as it happens, we have portable storage solutions which you can bring to your site. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're in business. Because otherwise, the other traditional selling thing of, you know, selling benefits and features and so on, and you get objections. And then you've got to you know, overcome the objections and do objection handling, which is the traditional stuff. But the idea with spin selling is you never get to objections because you're looking for the tensions, you build a story and so on. What you're telling is like good tension. Is there bad tension in it as oh, well? Yeah. Fear is a very, very common thing. Trump doing it with immigrants across Europe as well. All the people coming from Syria and everywhere else looking for somewhere. You can't blame them looking for somewhere safe. But politicians will play to natural xenophobia, will play to fear. These people are going to come and take your jobs. That's been happening for centuries. For a long time, it was things like Jews. It's commonly used. Fear appeals to primitive things like... Before I worked for HP, I've briefly worked for another company in which... I was head of software and the head of R&D. I had a base thing. I went, well, I think this is wrong. We need to do this. And I disagreed with him. And he said, you disagree with me. I'll sack you. Yeah. At which point I went, okay, I need to find another job. And I went mm-hmm. and got a job with HP. But he was using a fear appeal. He was saying, if you don't do as I say, I will do something that will hurt you. But you can use fear as well. You can use fear as, for example, Brexit. There's lots of fear around Brexit being used by various people in various ways. In fact, the people who want Brexit are accusing the people who don't want Brexit to remain in Europe. And they're calling it, rather cleverly, calling it Project Fear, you know, like it's some sort of planned thing. And that the people who want to remain have got this almost like a conspiracy of, we're going to spread fear. But this doesn't really, it's just project. Yes, negative stuff used a lot. Personal threats. You know, the mob. How does the mob work? By personal threat. Mm-hmm. Backing it up with a little example now and again. Oh, I'll just come in and break your knees. You don't have to do them to do it. You just need to know they will do. All of a sudden, you're very compliant, which is then that manipulation, because there's the difference between getting compliance in terms of getting people to do things, even though they don't necessarily want to do it or believe it's the right thing to do, as opposed to changing what people believe and they think is right, which is more this of religious conversion, is changing the, the things like that. Because when we're growing up, One of the the early things we do is we figure out what works and what doesn't work. Children do lots of experiments. They'll try something. It doesn't work. When I was young, I stuck my finger on the cooker and I got a little square on my finger and it (laughs) hurt a lot. I didn't do it again. So I was doing experiments. Your experiments then, but there are other things which, you know, you've concluded when you were younger that maybe they're different. Sometimes reawakening those things is that can be used in persuasion you learn to fear some things because it's a survival method you learn that that snake over there don't mess with it so there's some things you, you want to learn from other people rather than by experience because you only get one experience i have a relatively fresh example of even more weird use of of fear or oh, maybe you mm-hmm. could shed some light on it cool. so we are talking a huge organization like i don't know 20 30,000 people something like this And they have a yearly bonus. And the difference between this bonus and what they do monthly is bigger than in most other organizations. So this bonus is important to people. What is really interesting, it seems like, I haven't seen, of course, all 20,000 people who work there, but it seems like a great majority of the company lives in a fear of losing the 100% of the bonus, even though... I've checked actually with HR and last year only two people in this whole organization got less than 100% bonus. So mm-hmm. it doesn't happen. Everybody knows it will be manipulated towards the end of the year so everybody <coughs> gets it. Still people living in fear. And so you get this illusory fear. It's a kind of trick. It's a bit of a magical trick where 
the culture and so on, there's, there's this constant threat of something could happen. You know, it's like the threat of saying, if you do bad things, you'll be sacked. Whereas in reality, very, very few people get sacked for doing bad things. They got told off, whatever, and they promised to be better next time, but very few people get sacked for doing bad things. Because bonuses, when people expect it, it's a a punishment system to not get your bonus, you're being punished. Absolutely, yes. Because people are expecting it, even to the point of planning their lives on it. You know, my bonus is you to pay for my holiday, which I've already booked. Mm. And my kids, you know, are going to come with me. And so if I don't get it, and that that's part of the dilemma, I, it's no longer really a bonus, in effect. Yeah, but I was curious, how do you install this system of fear, even though no one seen it happening yeah. before and if it's done on purpose or it just kind of drifts that way yes it becomes a myth when it is talked about but never happens you can sustain that myth by not telling people what bonus other people are getting right so we you know it's, it's like very often in companies you don't know what other people are getting you know mm -hmm. what, what salaries they're getting and sometimes you'd be unhappy if you did know So you're happier not knowing. By and large, people are happier not knowing because then you get the status thing and you're comparing yourself with others and so on. Bonuses generally, I think, are nuts. You're paid a salary to do your job. Why do you need to be bribed to do more? And in some industries, financial industry in particular, bonuses are enormous. Is it some sort of tax scheme or... But why do you ever need a bonus to persuade you to do your job, which you already have and you're paid a salary to do? Why do you need a bonus? Factory, all you're doing is taking a person's salary, cutting it in half and saying, your salary is half of what it will be, and the rest is in bonus. It's a little persuasive game. What it's a lot comes into is extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, where money is an extrinsic thing. We work for the money. You know, whereas what you really want is people who are intrinsically motivated, who do it because they just love the job. They really, really want to do it and they're passionate about it. But the problem with the extrinsic rewards is it tends to replace the intrinsic ones. And you focus on those and um, you end up with people who are actually less motivated. They're mm. just there for the money. Thank you very much. Money is one of those weird things. It, I did a negotiating course once. And we did a whole bunch of exercises negotiating for things or whatever. And in every single exercise, it was all very nice. And, you know, well, I'll do this and you'll do that and so on, until it came down to money. And then these nice people turned into monsters, deceiving you and tricking you out of things. And just because it was money, and it wasn't really money, it was just in the game. And part of the learning from it was going, yeah, watch out. There are some things that will corrupt people, mm. Ooh, which also comes from an interesting I saw recently which is a really good point. This thing about power corrupts. Power doesn't corrupt is the point. Power reveals, reveals the person. It reveals the corruptibility that power reveals your true values. And as it turns out, quite a lot of people are more corruptible than they'd like to admit. Could even be us, who knows? We don't know. And watching the stories of people who have won lotteries is very interesting. Some just blow it all. It just goes away on holidays, houses, fast cars, whatever. But some people don't change. They just give it away. The most effective ones will set up a bit of a charity whereby they've got this pile of money and they're treated as a job. And their job is to give away the money to worthy causes. Their lives don't change at all. They still got the same friends and people. They've told people, no, I'm not, I'm not going to give the money to you. I'm going to give it to something I've, you know, that's worthy, and it'll be determined by this trust or whatever. Yeah, the people who do that usually end up happier. Mm. Yeah, and that's part of the paradox. Because happiness is a whole big deal. The whole positive psychology stuff that, for a long time, psychology was, was like a medicine. Uh, you think of it, it was about fixing broken people. And then somebody said, oh, what about looking at happy people and can we spread happiness rather than fix brokenness? Maslow was the first one to yes. check the healthy people, really, right? Yes. He was one of the first, the positive psychologists and uh, the humanists mm -hmm. and said, yes, let's be nice. It's nice to be nice and it feels nice to be nice. 
Mm-hmm. You know, kindness, being kind is one of the best ways of feeling good about yourself. Being grateful, gratitude is fabulous. Just say thank you. Say thank you to people. You feel good. We, we just now before we came in, we, you know, we drove out to a local town to buy some stuff. You know, and you're driving around the town and you're negotiating the traffic and you stop for somebody and somebody comes around the other car or you let somebody out the side road and they wave at you and you feel really good. And you wave back going, oh, I'm feeling good now. And it's just because I let somebody out. And it's a stranger. I'll never see them again. But for a moment, they made me feel good. Mm-hmm. It's funny that in the last sentence, almost you mentioned that psychology was about like medicine and about fixing broken people. When you said medicine, I thought about medicine as we have now, which is still kind of a, not far from witchcraft. We still understand very little. Medicine, just a quick anecdote on the medicine thing I heard recently, is about placebos. You, know, you give somebody and you tell it it's a pill that's going to make them feel better. And bizarrely it does, even though it's got nothing in it. There were some interesting studies done where they gave people placebos and told them it was a placebo and said, this is a placebo. There's no medicine, no science in here at all. And people still got better. Right? And it was amazing. The only thing they could find, the greatest predictor of it, was the relationship of the patient with the doctor who was prescribing the thing. So if they trusted the doctor, then the doctor could say, here's a placebo, and it would work. It's just bizarre. Yes. Yeah. I think it's called the Hafthorn effect, that if you feel that someone is taking care of you, the whole notion of care is enough for you to make you feel better. Mm. Yes. So this actually plays into, just we dive down a rabbit warren here, of robot care. The Japanese have been experimenting with this, so they've got a lot of older population, of little furry things which wriggle and make moany noises, and they sit, the older folks sit there and stroke them and feel good. Yeah. David, two very concrete questions to wrap up the story. You already mentioned quite a few books over this conversation. Mm. But if you were to recommend one on anything, what would it be? I could never do just one, but I know what you mean. Bob, I'll pick one that I'm reading at the moment by Steve Taylor, and it's called The Leap. He's a psychology professor who studies spiritual experience. It's the psychology Mm -hmm. of spiritual experience. It's of people who like go into this like, like state of just total calm and happiness and and which is very much like the you know the nirvana religious buddhist things that have been described by people in all sorts of different religions but he finds people and a lot of people who have, are not religious and he calls it wakefulness and, and sort of wonders if it's some sort of you know next evolution of human existence or something but people who are like super happy super forgiving and just like everybody and all kinds of stuff and you're going oh i would really like to be like that but it's all about it and all about people who've done that it's really fascinating so the leap steve taylor we definitely have to pick it up definitely okay the other question is related to the theme of this series and it's about your personal opinion Mm -hmm. what is Do you remember how to phrase it? What is the common sense that is not that common? Hmm. Something that seems to be common sense that's not common, yes. Yes. Commonness. Let's go down a completely sort of, you know, so we're going to the transcendence thing. I came across a word once which I didn't know what it meant, so I looked it up, and it's ontology. Ontology is the theology, the study of being in existence. And you get some wonderful philosophical rabbit warrens around that, about what existence really is. Uh, And there's sort of common sense that I exist. Yeah. You can't get more common sense than that. But nobody knows what I is. And only know what I know what my existence is. So... So existence is in itself a construction. Uh, so I is a construction as well. But it's a working hypothesis. <laughs> yeah. It works for me. And common sense is that. Common sense are things that work for me. Yeah. So it works for me that I exist. But if I, if I lie awake and start thinking about it, I'll end up falling asleep with the, just the effort of trying to figure it out. <laughs> and then where am I? If I'm asleep, where's the I? Here we go. 
Okay. <laughs> wow. That was definitely a good deep. one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, David, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I hope I've enjoyed this. It's lovely to see you again, albeit at a distance. I'm sure we'll come back to you in the future. It, the, the depths of your observations and analysis are way too deep and too vast not to tap into them in the future. So I will oh, we'll, we'll be back if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Over and out. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. Still going fine.